And as they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we do pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would bury your word deep in our hearts, that it would roost there and produce what it is you have sent it to us for. And so, Lord, now as we open your word to study what it means to be, to have your scriptures, to have your word given to us, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would see the scriptures in the way that you intend them to be seen. And Lord, that through them we would glorify Christ. And so be with us now in the preaching of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So again, we're in this, uh, in November, we're talking about these patterns of God's grace. How does God give us more grace? What does he do in us? And uh, if you remember, um, we looked a couple of weeks ago, the first week we talked about worship. How that's this pattern of, of weekly gathering together. It's this liturgy where we move through these things and we sing together. And that infects how we think about things as we worship regularly together. Um, singing helps us to remember things. And that patterns our hearts so that our hearts are conditioned to love the things that God loves as we're worshiping him the way he, he wants us to. Last week we talked about prayer and about fellowship and I said they seemed like two different things, but there was a common thread between the two of them, and that is you're relating to people. God is a person, and when you pray to him as our father, not as this invisible force, then you begin to develop a relationship, and this pattern of regular prayer reminds you over and over again, you're speaking to your father, your father who bends his ear and, and longs to hear what you want. So that, that's where we've been. And uh, the, the basic premise of this is God has a plan for us. He wants us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And according to Romans 8, 29, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God's plan for your life, his desire for you is that you are conformed. You look more and more like Jesus every day. That's what his, his plan is, so that Jesus might be the first among many brothers. So we're welcomed into his family so that we become like our big brother. We become more pleasing to God because we become more like our big brother. We follow who he is, what he's done in us. And, and don't get that confused to think I'm saying that we're saved by works or something. We're saved by God's grace. We're all Protestants here. So we know sola scriptura. Or so uh, threw me right off there. <laughs> Sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. And that's what Paul tells Titus in Titus 2.11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So grace brings salvation. Once we're saved, then, does God's grace just disappear? Does it just stop? No, he keeps going. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So that same grace by which you're saved is the grace that works in your heart now to train you in godliness and, and, and to lead you away from these ungodly passions. The point is God is working not so much on your brain exclusively, he's working on your heart. Because where your heart goes, that's where your actions will flow. So the point of God in conforming us to Christ, where he works is he works in our hearts and our desires, our passions, the things that we love, the things that we desire and seek after. So what, we're, what we want to know is how do we train our hearts, how do we train our passions to be more in line with what God wants? And that's what we, we said he's given us things to do that with. Peter commanded us, he said, grow in grace. 
And so he's given us things that we do, these patterns of bringing God's grace into our life, of seeing and thinking and reshaping our desires to be more in line with him. And what we said grace was, was grace is God's unmerited favor. And it doesn't mean that he's a big tipper. What it means is it's God's favor. It's what God thinks of you. That's the most important thing. What is God's attitude toward you? Not what other people think. So we don't pursue these, these patterns of grace in order to impress our neighbors. This is God's favor to you. And it's God's unmerited favor. There's nothing you can do to earn his favor. His favor rests upon you. What you do is become more conformed to what his favor desires for you. He loves you. He wants the best for you. And it is favor, God's positive disposition towards you. Now, he's already fixed his, his positive disposition on you because he saved you. He fixed his positive disposition on you from the beginning of the world because you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So these things that we're doing, these are what God has called us to do to conform to what he's expecting us to be, what he wants for us, what we will eventually be. The illustration I used was your doctor says you've got to lose some weight. And you go and you do all the things that she said, and then you show up and say, well, hey, look at my Fitbit. I've been walking every day. And she goes, okay, hop up on the scale. And you go, no, nah, I, don't, I don't care about that. Look at my Fitbit. Check out what I've been doing. That's where you can miss it and focus on these patterns to the exclusion of what they're supposed to do. And I think for us evangelicals, this one that we're going to look at today is particularly dangerous for this. Um, it's scripture and theology. And we can wind up getting fixated on our, our um, read through the Bible in a year with you know, the books and the dates, and we can check them off and look at my Fitbit and think that God's impressed because I did my Bible reading today. Even though it was busy, I squeezed it in. That's looking at the Fitbit. What God wants you to do is do the Bible reading and then hop up on the scale. Is it conforming you to the image of Christ? So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what scripture, how Scripture fits into this pattern of God's grace. What is he doing with the, pat, with, uh, with the scriptures in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. So what I want to do is, is ask the question, first of all, what is scripture? What, are, what is the Bible? And then in the end, ask us how that conforms us to the image of Christ. So as I was looking for a way to approach this, what is scripture? Um, I think that our statement of faith says it extremely well. Um, it was rewritten in 2006, so it's a fairly modern statement of what the Bible is. And it's Evangelical Free Church of America, so it's fairly concise, but pretty accurate. I think it's a pretty good statement. Um, this is not because I just did my licensing paper and had to write three pages on this one. That's, I, didn't, I don't think I even looked at it, okay? I just think this is a good way to do it. So let me refresh your memory. This is what our statement of faith number two says. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. I think that is just a wonderful statement about what our Bible is. So let's go through and look at this a little bit and unpack this because it can become so familiar we can kind of blow past it. Where it starts is it says, we believe that God has spoken. 
pause on that for a minute. God has spoken. When you hold your Bible in your hand, you're holding a miracle. This is God's word. God has spoken. The eternal, unchangeable, majestic, holy God has spoken to you in your Bible. You have to stop and listen to that for a moment. This isn't just a nice book to keep on my, um, on my shelf at home. This is God's word. God has spoken it to us. And the amazing part is he didn't speak it out in a field to nobody. God spoke this to you. This is his word to us. He's speaking to us. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, these things happened to them. He's talking about the exodus. He's recounted the exodus, and he says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Why is the Bible written down? For you. It's for our instruction. That's why God inscripturated it, why he put it on paper instead of just verbally transmitted. Romans 4, 23 and 24 says, but the words, it was counted to him. He's recounting Abraham, how Abraham was justified by faith. Paul then says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So the fact that Abraham was justified by faith, that Moses chose to record and it was credited to him, was for your benefit. So you would know what God intends in this. And then finally, 1 Peter 1.12, he's talking about all these prophets and he says, it was revealed to them, these prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you. So when you hold this Bible in your hands, when you read it, when you open it up in the morning, God spoke to you. It's amazing. It is, is such a startling truth to think that that's how God spoke. And, and what's amazing is it, he, it says he spoke through the words of human authors. He didn't speak through the words of human stenographers. He didn't speak through the words of human tape recorders. They're authors. An author writes. And so what you get when you look at the scriptures is you get God speaking and the author speaking. And miraculously, they're saying what God intended and what the author intended. So what you get when you look at the scriptures is, I said it was a miracle. I think it ranks right up there as far as miraculous with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully God, he didn't lose any divinity, and he was fully man, exactly like us, except without sin, in one person. That's how God came to us, that's how God came to dwell with us, is by being fully man and fully God in one person, in Jesus Christ. He gives us his word, and what is his word? It is God's word through human authors. It is fully divine, exactly what God intended to say, through human authors saying what they said from their perspective in their situation, in their emotional situation that they were in at the time. And in this way, the Bible is unlike any other religious book. For example, if you look at the Quran, Muhammad received the Quran. And I found this, this writing, a man explaining what it was like when Muhammad received the, the Quran. He said, remarkable phys physical changes that were apparent on the prophet's face whenever he received a Quranic revelation from on high. Those who were present would see his face turn red, and he would feel so hot that sweat drops would appear on his forehead. He would also become heavy to the extent that his thigh would press against the thigh of the person next to him. 
If he was riding, his mount would lay down. At the same time, noises like the buzzing of bees would be heard around his face. These manifestations would eventually subside, and the prophet would relax and recite the Quranic verse that he had received. Did Muhammad write the Quran? The Quran was impressed upon Muhammad, and he spewed it out. So if you look at the Quran, the Quran is all Allah and no man. Muhammad was just the intermediary. He was just the one who, who channeled those answers. What about the writings of Buddha, the, the Dharma? Uh, the Dharma is not considered by Buddhists to be divinely inspired. As a matter of fact, Buddhism is essentially an atheistic religion. It's just Buddha's wisdom. People had collected some of his sayings. So uh, Siddhartha goes out into the forest and he sits under a tree and he starts thinking and he receives enlightenment. He becomes the Buddha and he writes. And so when you look at the Dharma of Buddhism, it's all man and no God. But what do we have? We have God speaking through human authors. They wrote what they felt, what they were thinking, what, they, what was going on in their minds at the time. They wrote it down, and it was exactly what God wanted to happen. That's how intimate our God is. He doesn't fake it. He became man. His word came to us in a similar way. It is fully divine and fully human. So that's why Peter in 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So these, these legitimate prophecies that we have recorded were not done because somebody felt like it one afternoon. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, not as they were overruled, not as they were tortured into saying it. They spoke as the Holy Spirit carried them along. So it's not the case that God looked through all the writings of all the people who were familiar with him and went, you know, this Paul guy, he's pretty good. I like these. Well, it's kind of saying basically what I mean. It's not like he looked and said, you know, Peter got pretty close to what I was intending. So let's, let's go ahead and include that in the Bible. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were lifted up and, and led to say what they wanted to say. They freely wrote down what they wanted to say. That's an amazing way that God communicates to us. God spoke through human authors. Don't let that miracle get by you. Every morning when you sit down and you open your Bible to do Bible study, remember that phrase, God spoke through human authors, and be amazed at what you're about to do, because <laughs> it's incredible. The next phrase, it says, as the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. The Bible is verbally inspired. Actually, the word inspired should probably be expired because what Ron read to us was the scriptures are breathed out by God and to inspire is to blow into. Um, it's not like God blew into these words. God expressed, he, he breathed out these words. But what we know what we mean by inspired. The Bible is the verbally inspired. That means it, did, it wasn't inspired thought for thought. The very word that each author chose to write when they put pen to paper was the exact word God intended that to be at that time. 
So that's why when we preach or when we do Bible study in, in small groups or anything, we get really picky about exactly what it says is because God put that word there for that reason. It's the verbally inspired word of God. And the Bible is without error. Now, there's, there's two words that you may be familiar with in this, inerrant and infallible. And I think often we use them as interchangeable, but they have two very technical meanings. So what we mean by inerrant is without error. So human beings, we can make inerrant statements. I could ask you, how do you feel today? And you could, without error, explain to me exactly how you feel at that moment. So you're capable of making inerrant statements. Now, if I was to ask you how much money is in my savings account right now, you would maybe be able to take a guess. Your statement would be your best guess, kind of you know what I think it might be. But you wouldn't be able to answer that question without error. You would probably be wrong. I, I would probably be wrong if you asked me too. <laughs> so we're able to make inerrant statements. We're able to make very good guesses. And then we're able to be absolutely wrong, just flat out wrong. So the highest we can get is inerrancy. When we say infallible, what infallible means is without the capability of error. We are not infallible. God himself is infallible because he knows all things, because he, he understands where any molecule in the universe is at any given time, he can speak without error. As a matter of fact, it's impossible for him to speak with error. He can only ever tell the truth because that's what his character is. So when we say something is infallible, we mean it is incapable of error. So our statement of faith says the Bible is without error in the original writings. So is our Bible inerrant or infallible? It's got to be both. <laughs> because human authors, the highest they could attain would be inerrancy. If we found 4 Corinthians from Paul, it might have errors in it. Paul himself was not perfect. He, he could have written something that was wrong. But in the scriptures that we have, they were at the height of human capability, inerrant, without error. But since God inspired them, God is incapable of error. So we could say that the scriptures are inerrant or infallible. It depends on how we're looking at it. Is it a human document, a divine document? The, the point is they are without error. So there's nothing that the Bible says that's wrong. Everything in there is actually exactly what God intended it to say. And one last qualifying statement, it says, in the original writings. We talked about this in, in Sunday school. We were talking about the King James Version versus the later King James Version versus some other versions. Um, one of the issues with the King James is people say that that is the Texas Receptus. That's the manuscripts that it was written based on are the perfect encapsulation of what was actually written. And so when you get something like the NIV or something, it's using inferior texts. Uh, that raises the question, well, how do you make that determination? How do you decide if we have accurate text? Because we don't have the original writings. So this could cause you to say, well, then I can't trust it because I don't have the original writings. If the original writings were without error, that's what we need. But when you begin to stack up the, the documents, the copies, the quotations, the citations, the fragments of, of papyrus, when you begin to pile them up, what we've got is extraordinarily, extraordinarily accurate. And the, King, the, uh, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls should just blow away any doubt 
they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls written about 200 BC, the complete text of Isaiah. And so that was kind of a snapshot of what Isaiah looked like 200 BC. Compared to the text we have now, there's like three words different, and they're like, the is missing. So when you look at those things, when we say they're, they're inerrant in their original writings, we have great confidence that what we've got is extraordinarily, extraordinarily close to the original writings. There's plenty of testimony to it. And any of the differences that we have don't really change our doctrine, doesn't really blow us away. So they're inerrant, they're without error in their original writings. And since they're from God, God can't lie, he's never wrong, therefore his word is without error, then his word is the complete revelation of his will for salvation. How do you know how to be saved? The scriptures tell you how to be saved. It tells exactly what God is doing, what he's working on. And it is the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Where in the Bible does it say if right on red is legal? Where in the Bible does it explain the law of gravity? The Bible doesn't say everything about everything, but what it does say applies to all these things. Is right on red legal? Well, if the magistrate says it's legal, then it's legal. If it's not, then it's not. So how should the Christian behave? If it's right on red, follow the rules. If it's not, then follow the rules. So it doesn't have to address every single thing. It is the standard by which everything then is judged. So is it right that we do this or that? Well, what does the scripture say in principle? What, are the, what, is, what is God's heart? What is God's desire for these things? That's how we use this to judge every endeavor of human uh, uh, work. So that's the, the authority of our scripture. So when you sit down to read the Bible in the morning, this is how God has spoken to you so that every individual word in your Bible is exactly what he wanted to say. And God is speaking to you in a way so that there is no error in it. He's, he's telling you the honest truth, the, the truth as, as clear as it could be given to you. And he has given you as much knowledge as you need to judge every human endeavor. I was sharing uh, with a friend of mine at work back when I was in seminary, and I was talking about the Bible, and she said, well, don't we need a new one? It's really old. I mean, it doesn't talk about modern things. And don't, don't we need to get a new Bible? And I was trying to explain to her, no, because God said this. And he didn't have to address uh, self-driving cars because that's not an eternal thing. It'll be here in a few years and gone in a few years. You know, it's, it's not eternal. We don't need a new revelation from God. What he said is perfect. So that's how God has spoken to you with complete clarity and with complete authority. And then here's the great news. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. So how do you respond to this revelation, this beautiful book that God has written and put in your lap? You believe. Everything it teaches, you are commanded to believe. And so think about this for a second. When it says something like, Peter went out and wept, Anybody doubt that? There's no reason to doubt that. That seems perfectly reasonable. Had I just betrayed Jesus, I would probably be out there weeping too. So we don't have any problem believing that. that that's entirely feasible. Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. And when we had parted from them, we set sail, 
We came by a straight course to Kaz, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Parda. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come into the site of Cyprus, leaving on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for the ship was there to unload its cargo. Anybody doubt that happened? That sounds per, I, have you ever done that? I have never done that. I've never sailed the Mediterranean. I have no reason to doubt that. That, that sounds perfectly legitimate. It sounds like history, it happened. Elijah was with a bunch of his men by the Jordan River. And what they said is, we're gonna cut down some trees to build houses so we have a place to stay. Sounds reasonable, right? People did that back then. One of the men is chopping down a tree and the ax head flies off and lands in the Jordan. It, it, no reason to doubt that. It seems perfectly possible that an ax head would come loose, it would hit the Jordan and sink like a rock because they're made out of iron. Elijah went and cut off a stick and threw it in the water and the axe head floated. Ah, that doesn't happen. Really? You didn't sail from Kaz to Rhodes and land in Tyre, but you don't doubt that. You could even see going out with Peter and weeping because you betrayed Jesus, but now all of a sudden something that is a little less credulous happens and now we begin to doubt. I couldn't, that, that doesn't happen. That's exactly the point, folks. It doesn't happen. That's why it's recorded, is because it's miraculous. It was showing something. It was telling a story there. So when we talk about believing what the Bible says, there's parts where we wouldn't even bat an eye. And then there's parts where we're like, ah, I don't know. I don't get that. But that's the point, is God is showing his power in the world. He's telling you what's happening. And hadn't it often, or hadn't it at least at some point challenged you if it's God's word and not yours? Might not a God who is more than your imagination say something you're like, what? I don't get that. So if you read through Job and you get confused, and you're going, wait, is this right? Is he, what do he say? You're on good ground. It's okay. It's supposed to be confusing. <laughs> That's the way it is because God's bigger than you. So it's, it's to believe in all it teaches. Whatever the Bible says, we're to believe it. It is to be obeyed in all it teaches. So whatever it says is right. Um, when we talk about it being obeyed in all that it teaches, let's put that off for a second because it'll lead into the final point. But basically, if the Bible tells you to do something, it's not optional, right? The Ten Commandments, you've heard this before, the Ten Commandments are not good, good uh, advice. They're commandments. The Great Commission is not, wouldn't it be nice? It's a commission. This is what you're supposed to be doing. So it's supposed to be obeyed. Here's the great news. It is to be trusted in all that it promises. This God who spoke, who had these things written down for you so that you would hear, he has made you promises. You. He has made you promises. And so what we're called to do is trust God's promises. So when he says to you, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that's a promise. And what we're expected to do is believe his promise. Even though it doesn't look like we're saved, even though you know, the, the heavens didn't part and everything changed at that moment, we're called to faith, to believe his promises. He has done this. That's why I think a lot of the Old Testament is written, is to show this promise 
is what God made. This is how he fulfilled it. This promise, this is what God made. This is what he did. This is what he did. This is what he did. So when I tell you this, you, you can believe me. I've got a track record. It is to be obeyed in all, or believed in all that it promises. So let's go back to the, the issue of obedience. It is to be obeyed in all it teaches. This is an area where evangelicals will sometimes wind up in hot water. Um, because the world looks at it and says, you're inconsistent. So, for example, if someone is talking about the act of homosexual sex, and, a, and an evangelical Christian says, well, that's, that's wrong. Well, why? Well, I'm going to quote for you Leviticus, um, uh, Leviticus 20, uh, 13, that says that a man shall not live, lie with a man. It's an abomination. God hates that. So we look to the Bible and we say, Here, here's the text. Here's my proof text. This is why I say homosexuality is wrong. And then the retort, and, and they've gotten good at this. The word has gotten out. So people who are, are opposed to that come back real quick and they say, well, Leviticus 19 says, you shall keep my, command, my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow in your field two different kinds of seeds, nor wear a garment with cloth made of two different kinds of materials. What kind of shirt you got on there, bucko? Is that a blend? Sure looks like a blend to me. Why is it you're saying it's wrong to have uh, homosexual sex, but it's okay to blend your, your, um, your, your fabrics? They're right there next to each other, two, one chapter apart, same book. Aren't you being hypocritical? And the problem is, sometimes we don't know how to answer that. Um, uh, uh, now, the, the, the more sharp of us will say, yeah, but it talks about it in the New Testament as well. And that's true. So then... That doesn't answer the original question. The, the critic is going to say, okay, it says it in the New Testament. Why aren't you wearing one type of fabric in your clothing? Why are you mixing them? You're being a hypocrite. And I think the problem is, is that the critic doesn't really understand what the Bible is. They think the Bible is one book beginning to end, and it says one thing. And, and so you either take all of it or none of it. And it all has to be read the same way. It's, you know, read it flat because they're, you know, familiar with books. It's not. It's an anthology. It's a bunch of books, different styles of writing, different authors, different periods. And so sometimes they just don't get it. But often I think Christians don't understand what the Bible is either. And I mean that in a much less harsh way. I mean that much simpler. Sometimes when we approach our Bible, we can think of it as um, a list of doctrines. This is where I go to find out what I'm supposed to do. So here's my doctrines. Uh, Charles Hodge was an old Princeton theologian from the 1870s, and he wrote a systematic theology. And in his introduction to his systematic theology, he said, the Bible is to the theologian what nature is to, what nature is to the man of science. It is his storehouse of facts, and his method of ascertaining what the Bible teaches is the same as that which a natural philosopher adopts to ascertain what nature teaches. So Hodge's approach was, this is your field of study. It is a storehouse of facts. And so what you must do is go through and study these facts. And as a scientist would weave these facts together of nature to determine how things happen, you do the same thing with your scriptures. Is that what the Bible is? Is it a storehouse of facts? It's not. And when we approach it that way, we begin to slice and dice and pull pieces out. So when you get asked a question of why Leviticus 20 but not Leviticus 19, 
instead of asking a the right question, you're looking at it and saying, well, this fact, but not this fact. I, I'm not really clear how that fits together. What should I do? Where should I go with this? So here's, the, here's where this goes, is the Bible is more than just a list of facts. Um, I was reading in John Piper's new book, Reading the Scriptures Supernaturally, which is, I think this is John's kind of magnus opus. He's doing a trilogy of books, and I think this is kind of where he figures, you know, his ministry is led. It's really a great book. But what he says is, so Jesus, Paul, and John warn that Satan is the great enemy of Bible reading that sees what is really there. So that's the key, is what is really there. Bible reading that only collects facts or relieves our guilty conscience or feeds historical curiosities, that kind of Bible reading, Satan is perfectly happy to leave alone. He's already won the battle. So if you approach your scriptures and you look at it as, here's, here's the list of facts that I need, or, gee, I better find something pretty to calm my conscience because I did something pretty awful yesterday. Or, what a fascinating study of history. And you never go any further with that. What Piper is saying is Satan would be perfectly happy for you to read your Bible every day like that. He, he would stand there and say, please, continue. You're doing fine. So then, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> I mean, how are we supposed to read this thing? How do we read it supernaturally as Piper admonishes us to? What if... What if the Bible is not a list of doctrines? What if your Bible is a story? Remember how God created the world? God spoke and it was. The first chapter of the Bible says God spoke and a universe became. We live in a spoken universe. We live lives that are spoken by God. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what's going on in the scriptures is the Bible is not a list of facts. It is a story. I did a really rough check. It might find things that contradict me, and I'm okay with that. Rough check, I figure about 57% of the Bible is narrative. And by narrative, what I mean is reporting things that happened. Not like the epistle to the Romans, which is great doctrine. Most of our Bible is narrative. And therefore, it's a story. It's telling a story. Um, I've been talking with Jim. He's, Jim's using this chronological reading of the Bible where it puts the, the books in order of what the happened. And it's just eye-opening to approach it that way because now you get this overarching story that God's telling instead of a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here and a little bit there. The story is the story of a great king, a magnificent king, a very kind and generous king who established his kingdom and it rebelled. And it is at war with its king. And so this gracious, kind king sends his son, the prince, to go and rescue his people out of this kingdom. That's what the Bible is. That's the story of the Bible. It's a, it's a fairy tale. But it's a true fairy tale that's written in history. It's tremendously great news. So let's go back to that question of um, homosexuality in, in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 20. How do we look at that? Instead of saying it's a list of doctrines, how do we look at it and say it's part of a story? What we do is we don't fasten that back in history and say this is what God was like then and now he's like this. What we say is at that part of the story in, in, in Act 2, 
God was working in this place called Israel, this nation, and he established this nation state. And so his desires, his plans, his goals, the things that he, he wanted was always the same, but the way he implemented it at that point was like this. Then the hero comes. The hero of the story arrives. And when the hero arrives, he says, I'm setting you free from all of that. So God doesn't change the underlying story. He changes the approach. If you look at it as a story instead of static doctrines, you can actually begin to make sense of why the old covenant is gone. Why do we not? Why am I wearing a blend? Why is that legitimate? Because at the time, it was part of the story that was saying, these people are different. There's a separation. I'm teaching the world about holiness. And now that holiness is not external and fake. It's not something you put on or don't put on. That holiness is now moved inside. And it's something that you actually do and you be. And that's who you are. And that's only because the great prince has come to rescue his bride. So that's why these things change. I think that's a better way to understand these things is if we look at the Bible as a story, as a true story, as a story written in history, and then the important bits are picked up and put in Scripture so you don't miss them. And this was written for you so that you can do this. So the Bible isn't the static thing that happened once and then we look at the facts. The Bible is this moving story that's propelling us towards the conclusion. And by the way, I peeked at the end. It's pretty awesome. We win. We win big time. We get this beautiful city. We get God dwelling in our midst. All of our enemies, every single one of our enemies, sin, death, hell, all thrown away. The prince won. So that's what we got to look forward to. You get that when you read it as a story. That's, the, that's what, what's going on. So then, how on earth does this conform our hearts to Christ? How does this story do that? Um, and, and what's the role of theology in it? Because I said it was scripture and theology. Um, there is a movie called Grace of Monaco starring Nicole Kidman. It's, it's a biopic about Grace Kelly. And if you don't know, in the 1950s, Grace Kelly married Prince Rainier of Monaco and became Princess Grace. And so, I mean, she's just the most glamorous movie star that ever was. And for her to move into this real-life princess fairy tale in Monaco, of all places, you figure it was just perfect and wonderful. Well, this, this film, uh, Grace of Monaco, it tells the story of how things weren't so great in Monaco at that time. Charles de Gaulle was getting really mad at Monaco because of tax issues. And so he began to boycott them and, and prevent them from using airports and this kind of stuff. And so Grace's husband, Prince Rainier, is wrestling with what are we going to do here? And people are looking at Princess Grace as, well, she's just an American outsider. You know, she's some farm girl. She's not a princess. And so she's wrestling with what to do. And at one point of the movie, she goes to an archbishop and, um, and uh, a lord or something of the thing, and she says, Tell me the history of Monaco. Tell me the story of Monaco. What are the customs? How have things worked here? And so uh, Sir Derek Jacobi sits down and begins to explain to her the history of Monaco. And, and at one point, he finally says, you've got to play your most important role ever. You've got to be Princess Grace. She went to the, to the um, archbishop to ask the question, not, what do I do? Give me the rules. She went and said, what's our history? What's our story? Who are we? So that she could be Princess Grace. And so in the movie, after she gets this lesson, she goes for a while, she emerges as now this regal, 
important person who begins to unify her country behind her husband. And, and in, in the picture, I don't know what the reality was, she kind of saves Monaco because she gets them together and, and helps them focus. But do you see what she did? She became who she had to be, not by getting the rules. She didn't go to a lawyer and say, what are the rules for Monaco? She went to a history person, a storyteller. So what's my story? What's my role in this? So if, if the Bible is God's story, the way that you're going to be conformed in the image of Christ is you need to ask yourself this question. What part am I? What's my role in this story? Let me give you a hint. You're not the hero. The hero is much better than you. You want to be on the hero's side. You might be the comic relief in Act 3. That might be your role. So you need to ask that question, what is my role? And so here's where theologians can help. Theologians come and they study the story. They go pour over the story. They pour over all the characters in the story, and they say, this is where the story is going. This is who the characters are. And so when you get up in the morning and you do your Bible study and you, you, you check off your little boxes, what you've done is you've said, what's my character today? What's my role in this play today? What am I to do? How am I to live? It's a big play manuscript. So it takes a while to let it sink into your heart so that you can begin to live like that. But that idea of, of bathing in the word, constantly having it pour over you, what it's doing is God is telling you his story over and over and over again. So you can begin to believe it. So you can begin to live like it. So you can begin to think, I know what the end of this is like. And it isn't blinking out into nothing, nothingness. It's great. I'm going to be part of this story. So the, I read this thing. Um, I had to issue this with a, a, a hint of warning. The man's name is Peter Lightheart. If you've never heard of him, that's okay. Um, he's good on some things, and he's wrong on some things. So if you read Peter Lightheart, read him with a degree of discretion. However, on this, he was really good. In Comet Magazine in fall of 2012, he was the guest editor. And what he is talking about is he's, the, the issue was on scripture. And so he's talking about um, how do people become scripture-based. So what about scripture-saturated fiction? And he brings up Jane Austen. And so he says, Jane Austen did not discover from an inductive Bible study that God wanted her to write novels in a certain way. She grew up in the home of an Anglican pastor where she heard scriptures read. She performed daily prayers, participated in weekly liturgy from the Bible-saturated Book of Common Prayer. Her writing is, quote-unquote, biblical because Bible pumped in her veins. She couldn't have writ written in any other way. Now, I don't know Jane Austen that well, but if he's right, I think he's on to something here. Why do we saturate our minds in the Bible? Why do we keep hearing the story over and over and over again? Because we want it to be in our veins. We want to just think Bible. So that our hearts then are trained to love what's in line with this story. So that when, when Haman appears, we can all like Jewish children go, Sss. we recognize the bad guys. It's not a mystery when somebody bad shows up. You go, hey, I know that because it's out of line. It's, he's just like this person in that story. I know your role. And I'm supposed to oppose you. So this is how God uses his scriptures to train our hearts to love what Christ loves. Is he expects us to spend time in them over and over and over again. Read them and read them and read them. Read the word of God. 
It's God's word through human authors to you. So let's take a look at that passage that I had Ron read this morning. Paul is talking to his young disciple, Timothy, who he sent to Ephesus to lead the church in Ephesus. And so Paul's writing to encourage him. And he says, but for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it from childhood until now. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. He tells Timothy, Timothy, you were brought up in a godly home. You, your mother and your grandmother taught you the word of God regularly. You have had your brain, brain baked in it. You know it. So continue to walk in that. And then he explains what scripture is to him. This is what it means that you have the scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Timothy, what you're supposed to do is bathe your brain in the Bible. Know it. It's able to make you wise for salvation, and then you can use it the way it's supposed to be used, for training. This is your role. This is your part that you're playing. You're not delivering the lines quite right. Let me correct that for you. For training, for correction, Ah, you stepped out of, out of character here. For reproof, get back in character. And for training in righteousness, now you're doing it. That's the role you're called to play. So that's where he puts his confidence. He wants him to have confidence. The Bible is God-breathed out. The Spirit carried these people along. God spoke as humans wrote. And so where does he go with that then? He says, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ... If that don't make you stop and pay attention, ask somebody next to you to nudge you. Because God's saying, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing, his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, extort, and with complete confidence and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Timothy, what are you supposed to do with this word? You are supposed to know it so well that you preach it. You explain it to people. You speak. You're ready in season and out of season. You don't have to get a, a sheet of questions that somebody might ask you and you get ready for it. You're ready in season and out of season. When the time's right, when the time's wrong, you've got the Bible baked into your brain so much. You've read it so many times. You know the story. In season, out of season so that you can reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with complete patience and teaching. That's how we're supposed to be handling the scriptures together, reminding each other, telling each other, reproving each other, exhorting each other, holding each other up. And why? Well, here's the danger. Time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You see where the heart comes into this? I'm going to accumulate teachers to feed my warped passions instead of having my passions tuned to what the scriptures say. That's the danger. There's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from learning the truth and wander off into myths. You see, story is in there as well. They didn't stop believing stories. They believed wrong stories. They're believing myths. 
We are story-based creatures. We love to tell stories. Why do you think Hollywood makes so much money? Because they tell stories. Why do you think the book business is so huge? There are 100 billion books that get submitted every day because we love to tell stories. And so what Timothy is, or what Paul is telling Timothy is that there's a time when people are going to want their own passions stirred up instead of having their passions turned towards God. And what they're going to do is they're going to wander off not to bad doctrines, but myths. They're going to follow the wrong story. So this is why what we need to do is spend time in God's word intentionally, on purpose, looking toward it to say, Lord, would you open my mind and my heart? I want my passions tuned in the right way. I, don't, I want to recognize a myth as soon as it shows up. So we're coming towards the end of the year. My annual plea, get a Bible reading plan this, this coming year. Start January 1st and read through the Bible every day. And if I can just jump on Jim's bandwagon, use the chronological one. It's really cool. You'll get the story. But whatever you do, don't show God your Fitbit. Here's what I mean. When you're reading, when you get up in the morning, you do your Bible study, you make sure you get up early enough, you can get it done, or you do it before you get too drowsy at night so you can spend some time in it. And you check off the little boxes and don't look at those little boxes and go, oh, God must really be pleased with me. Look at those little boxes and go, look what God's doing in my brain. Look how far I've gotten through the word. This is really good news. Don't show God your Fitbit. Use your Fitbit to get fit. Okay, so that's what you want to do. And read the word, study it. What I do when I open my Bible, the first thing I do, and I, I don't always do this and then I have to stop and back up, is I sit down, I pull my Bible out, I hold it in my lap, and I just pray really quick. Lord, this is your word to me. Would you open my mind, my heart, to see what you've got to say? That's what, Paul, that's what John Piper means when he says, reading the scriptures supernaturally. Is it's a supernatural event. There's something beyond nature happening when you open your Bible. So ask God, invite him in. Lord, help me see your story as I read your word. And then read. And by the way, if you get bored and lost at parts, it's okay. You don't have to, it, it, this isn't your effort to really work hard to, to dig something. I'm going to get some gem out of this genealogy. I swear I am. The genealogy just might be the back of the program that says, and starring as. <laughs> and it might not have some great nugget of wisdom. So don't look to the scriptures as a list of doctrines where you've got to get something out of a genealogy so that you can go to work and be a better Christian that day. Look at the bigger story. This is the cast of characters. Look at how big this cast of characters was. God was amazing. He orchestrated all this. So study and ask him, Lord, would you show me? And remember that this is God-breathed, and it's profitable for training, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's, that, even the, even the, the law, when it says don't mix tweeds or, or, or cotton or whatever, even that is profitable as you look through and ask, where am I at in the story? So this is where theologians can help us, as they help us understand the story. This is where individual scripture can help us as we study the story. But I just want to issue one warning. When you come across a theologian and he approaches it like dry doctrine, like here's this statement, here's this statement, here's this statement, if you don't hear a sense of wonder in what he's saying, be very cautious. Be really careful with that theologian because if it's not stirring his heart, he might be barking up the wrong tree. 
So take care with who you listen to, but that's why we're together. God has given different abilities to different people, and so some people are teachers. And so they're going to help you read this story and figure out where you fit in. And this is how God uses this as grace in your life, is he's patterning your heart to be in line with what the Scripture says. And as you do that, it manifests itself in your life as you walk with him in, in increasing integrity. And God can look at you and go, he's more like my son. I'm going to give him more favor because he's more like my son. And let me, let me give him more favor. It's what he desires for you. It's what he's predestined you to be is conformed to the image of his son. So that's why he's given us his word so we can walk in that. So we can draw closer to who Jesus is. So please, next year, if you haven't done it yet, start with a, a through the Bible reading plan. And then don't be so dogmatic about it that you break the speed limit because you got to get home and read your Bible or something. Understand that it is what God's given you to draw you closer to him. And, and do it with grace, with God's favor, with kindness. Let's close in prayer now. Lord, your word is an amazing thing that you've given to us. And it is grace. It is God's unmerited favor that you would speak to us, that you would inscripturate it, put it down on paper so that we can look back and say, what did God say? Instead of listening to myths and stories, we've got it written on paper, preserved throughout the ages for us, without error. And Lord, you have spoken to us in your word. Lord, I pray that it would have its purpose in our hearts and our minds, that it would condition us to be in line with what you're doing in the world, because that's ultimate reality. What we see on Netflix or Hulu or Channel 7 is not necessarily reality. It might be those myths that people are following off on, running after. Lord, help us to see the world as you see it. And may your scriptures and their authoritative position in our lives do that. Lord, give us faith, even when the hard parts come up, even when it gets difficult. Give us faith, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.